Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Matthew, as Marcus said, and today's uh, scripture reading is from Ruth chapter 3. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Hear the word of the Lord. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are the guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger man, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All of the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of, your, of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her, for her Ruth, and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome to Haverhill Commons. My name is Chrissy, and I'm on the preaching team here. Our oldest son, Jeremiah, is allergic to the outdoors, pure and simple. It started when he was four. Spring came, and with it, the sneezing, the watery eyes, the sniffles. Uncertain what to do with our rather miserable four-year-old, Hunter and I gave him Claritin, and he felt better. So the next spring, we gave him more Claritin, 
only this time it didn't work as well, and neither did other antihistamines. So we tried the lowest dose, children's Flonase, which is a nasal spray, and it was almost miraculously effective until the next spring when that wasn't enough either. We upped the dose, but he was obviously still struggling. By the time last spring arrived, Jeremiah was miserable every time he stepped outdoors, despite taking the highest doses of Flonase and Zyrtec recommended for kids. As a parent, I felt stuck. We couldn't just keep our sports-loving, hates-to-sit-still-lives-outside seven-year-old cooped up inside all spring. But when he played outdoors, his eyes puffed up. He couldn't breathe, and he was up all night coughing. We finally did what we probably should have done sooner, went to an allergist. As it turned out, there wasn't much more we could have been doing. Flonase and Zyrtec combo were exactly what the allergist recommended, as were the showers and clean clothes every time he came inside. But there was one more thing we could try, immunotherapy, allergy shots. Three injections every week for nine to 10 months, and then every month for five years. It's supposed to be highly effective, but the cost felt pretty high. Weekly appointments, so many shots, and the financial cost of whatever our health insurance didn't cover. Despite all the costs of allergy shots, the alternative felt worse. Keeping Jeremiah cooped up just as the weather turned warm every year? Limiting his favorite sport, baseball, because of grass exposure? The constant managing of symptoms. The mom, I'm tired, but I can't sleep because I can't stop coughing. No matter how we looked at it, I just couldn't figure out a scenario where Jeremiah didn't suffer. No matter what we chose, he suffered. A total no-win situation. So what do you do when you're not sure what to do? When you're stuck in a job, you'd love to quit, but you feel like you can't because you need the money and the health insurance. When you keep making the same mistakes, when you're stuck in a pattern of unhealthy behavior or addiction and you want to stop, but you can't seem to change or break out by yourself. And you're not sure you can ask for help because it's frightening and vulnerable and what if it doesn't even help? When you're always exhausted, always busy, never get a moment to breathe, always at the end of your rope but you have no idea what to give up or put aside to catch a break because everything you're doing matters and someone might get hurt if you stop. So what do you do when there's no easy answer? But you need an answer, a solution, a direction, something, because where you are isn't working anymore. As you may recall, if you've been with us, we're in the middle of a sermon series on Ruth called Love That Won't Let Go. And we left Ruth gleaning in Boaz's fields. In our chapter this morning, I think we find Naomi and Ruth heading towards the point of no good options. And they demonstrate two of the ways that we can respond. Settling for what we can get right now on our own, even if it's not that great, or courageous pursuit of what is good, even in the face of obstacles and uncertainty. 
Things probably weren't going great since arriving in Israel, but it seems like Naomi and Ruth did okay with Ruth gleaning in Boaz's field. But the end of harvest is approaching, and they still don't have a long-term plan. For two women, alone, in a patriarchal society, this isn't a great place to be. Naomi starts to scheme. The wheels in her brain are turning. Boaz noticed Ruth. That's good, right? She grabs onto that to use it to their advantage and starts building a plan, the gist of which goes like this. Ruth, remember how our family's relative Boaz has been kind to you? Here's what you should do. Wash, get dressed, make yourself appealing. Then go to Boaz. Watch where he's going to sleep, but don't let him see you until he's full of good food and plenty of alcohol. Once he's asleep, go take off his blankets and sleep with him. Then wait for him to tell you what else to do. Right now, as a child of the 90s and the American evangelical purity culture, it would make me more comfortable to paraphrase Naomi's plan like the message, which says, lie at his feet and let him know that you're available to him for marriage. And many good biblical scholars do just that. There isn't universal consensus on what happens in this passage. And the reality of interpreting scripture is that sometimes we read our own values into it even as we hope to allow scripture to shape our values. That said, given my own study and the Hebrew text and collaboration with the staff team, I can't ignore what I'm seeing. While it's obscured in many translations, the Hebrew is full of wordplay, double meaning, and sexual innuendo, both in Naomi's plan and later when Ruth encounters Boaz. Like our phrase, sleep with, Lie down in Hebrew could mean simply laying down. But when it referred to a man and a woman together, it generally carried sexual connotations. And the bit about uncovering his feet, that could mean uncovering his legs or the lower half of his body, but was equally commonly a euphemism equivalent to private parts. And the women who typically went to a threshing floor, particularly after nightfall, They weren't exactly known for unquestionable virtue. This context leaves Naomi's plan sounding rather more like, Ruth, make yourself appealing. Wait for Boaz to get tipsy. Let him know you're available to him and see what he says. See if you can reach a mutually beneficial relationship from that situation. I don't see much to indicate Naomi is suggesting marriage, and instead significant allusions to other Old Testament stories where someone leveraged intimacy into opportunity. But before we come down too hard on Naomi, I think this is a doing what you feel like you have to kind of plan. While the text doesn't clearly indicate whether her motives are focused on Ruth's best interest, as she states, or more self-centered, as considering the whole plan might suggest. I wonder if, like many of us sometimes, she could have mixed motives. Like when I tell my children to go to bed because they need sleep, but also because I need them to sleep so I can do homework. 
Whatever the motive, it appears Naomi has decided that Boaz could be the source of their security and provision, and Ruth is their ticket to getting there. It might not be a great plan, but maybe it's better than where they are now. And Naomi seems willing to settle for that. But what about Ruth? Without a word of argument, Ruth agrees to everything Naomi outlined. Really? Without question, Ruth, the woman of virtue, is heading to seduce Boaz for her own gain? I can only imagine what Ruth felt like on that walk. Heart pounding, sneaking along, hiding out so no one sees her. Wondering, what's about to happen? Will her life get better? Or is she throwing away even what little she has left? Her reputation as a strong, courageous woman who sacrificed for Naomi. Is she about to trade that in for a reputation as a loose Moabite woman, proving right all those who warned against foreign women? I imagine in this moment that Ruth is standing on the precipice of her own no-win situation. As a loyal daughter-in-law, she's committed to caring for Naomi, perhaps no matter the cost to herself. But as a woman of strong character, she wants to choose the best option, not settle for good enough or whatever she can get right now. What if she could find a way to honor Naomi and do as she asks, but in a way that doesn't compromise her own dignity and character? Would God provide that for her? Whatever she felt, Ruth goes boldly to the threshing floor and does as Naomi instructs, at least initially. But when she gets to the passively waiting for Boaz to tell her what to do part, she deviates sharply from Naomi's plan. Boaz wakes up and, frightened to find himself uncovered with someone lying beside him in the middle of the night, asks, Who are you? And Ruth responds, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now that is a big, bold request, compared to the passive waiting that Naomi instructed. Instead of, Boaz, I'm available to you. Do with me what you will, as long as you provide for me. Ruth asked Boaz to remember the blessing he prayed over her in chapter 2. The Hebrew word Ruth uses here for corner of your garment is literally wings. Ruth asks Boaz to spread your wings over your servant. And this strikes me for two reasons. First, Ruth is asking Boaz to be the embodiment of God's faithfulness to her, to be the wings under which she takes refuge. Kind of like she's saying, Boaz, you asked God to bless me. Did you mean it enough to help make it happen? Or was it just a polite, I'll pray for you? And second, there are strong allusions to the marriage ceremony in Ruth's request. I'm convinced she's asking Boaz to marry her. Yes, she followed Naomi's instructions about making it clear she's available. But she isn't willing to settle for a short-sighted or half-baked security and instead courageously pursues what she believes they need and should have. She asks for the full and long-term provision and security that marriage can provide in this culture. 
Given the way this story has been turned into numerous romance novels, or the way that Boaz has been pictured as the perfect man and lover in the evangelical world, I think it's worth mentioning. I don't see this as a romantic offer. Whatever sexual interest may be at play in the mode of this request, nothing here suggests that Ruth is romantically in love with Boaz, or vice versa. As she has throughout the story, Ruth plays the role of breadwinner here for her and Naomi. She asks Boaz to make their future secure, and the means of that security is marriage. And remember, she is a poor Moabite widow, and he is a wealthy Israelite man. It's a bold, almost audacious request. Interestingly, Boaz isn't put off by this. What he must be thinking would be its own interesting story to unpack, but I'll let Matt do that in another sermon. He responds, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Kindness. It's that word, hesed, again. That faithful, won't let go, never gives up, always keeps its promises kind of love. The kind we've seen Ruth directing towards Naomi all along. Except this time Boaz says it's directed at him because Ruth seeks him out in marriage rather than a younger, perhaps more physically or sexually appealing man. Hesed. Loving kindness. Shown to him? Isn't Ruth the one asking for provision and protection and his favor? Absolutely. And while this isn't explicit, I see suggestions here that both Ruth and Boaz recognize something that Naomi missed. Maybe Naomi is so beaten up by the world, so tired of coping, that in some ways it makes sense she would try and get whatever she could when she has the chance, even if it means using Ruth. But I think in that, she missed how valuable Ruth is. Valuable in the same way that each of us are created and loved by God. Valuable in her strength of character. So Naomi is willing to settle for whatever they can get. But Ruth, recognizing her own value, realizes that she also has something to offer Boaz. Something it turns out that he wants. When he responds to her request, promising to do all that she asks, he refers to her as a woman of noble character, using the same phrase that describes the woman in Proverbs 31. Boaz understands Ruth's value, even if Naomi doesn't. Like Matt suggested recently, I have to wonder if Boaz's own lineage influenced his ability to recognize Ruth's value as a woman of noble character. Having grown up with a mother, or perhaps as likely grandmother or great-grandmother, who was a, once a Canaanite prostitute, perhaps he understood better than most that status and citizenship aren't everything, that character matters. Honestly, I'm not completely clear on what happens next. 
perhaps because the text doesn't spell it out, and perhaps because we're a few millennia and abundant cultural differences removed. Boaz explains to Ruth that there is another guardian redeemer, a closer relative than him. But it's really not clear, and scholars disagree, on why exactly that matters, or how it's all tied to him marrying Ruth. What is clear is that Boaz is committed to honoring Ruth's request. He assures her of this with his verbal promise, and then sends her home with a significant amount of barley, a tangible token of his commitment to provide for her through marriage, perhaps not unlike an engagement ring for us. We close this chapter much like we began it, with Naomi and Ruth at home. As you might expect, Naomi wants the scoop. What did you do? What did he do? Ruth recaps, highlighting Boaz's kindness and favor rather than her own courageous role in bringing it about. She makes it clear, Naomi, you're all set. Not just today, but for good, permanently. Ruth is securing a future for both of them, faithfully, lovingly providing for Naomi, just as she has done all along. I'm not sure that even now Naomi quite gets it. She concludes, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Back she goes to waiting on Boaz, focused on what he is going to do, seemingly missing how much of this Ruth orchestrated. It will be others who finally acknowledge this later after Ruth gives birth to a son, speaking of her as your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons. Like Naomi, why do we settle for less than God's good provision? Maybe because sometimes it's just hard to cling to hope and dignity and belief in God's goodness when we feel beat down. But sometimes, like Ruth, if we courageously refuse to believe that God has given up on us, if we say with the psalmist, I will remain confident of this, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, then sometimes, sometimes, we get to see and experience God's faithfully good provision in ways we might have missed if we settled for good enough. Maybe we settle for scraps from God's table, but God's heart is to adopt us into the family, to welcome us to the feast. How many times do we see this in Scripture? If I can just touch the hem of his garment. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, just carry me to the healing waters. That's enough. And each time Jesus says, no, that's not all I'll do. I have more for you. This is the God who does more than we could ask or imagine. That's pretty incredible when you think about it because we have pretty good imaginations and we ask for quite a lot of things. 
But God's Hesed love is to do more than all of that. How do I know? Look at Jesus. Now, allow me a proud parent moment and let me finish the story about Jeremiah. Hunter and I decided that since Jeremiah was the one suffering the allergies and he's the one who has to get the shots, it seemed right to include him in deciding. We talked about it and after thinking it over, he finally told me, Mom, I really don't want to get the shots, but I want to go outside and I want to play baseball. I think I should do them. Hope for something better. We did our last weekly shot on Wednesday and are now moving to the monthly ones. I've been so impressed and proud of the courage he's shown, both in making the choice to do the harder thing in the hope of something better, and then every week as we've gone together to see it through. But to be fair, sometimes in life our moments of no easy answers aren't quite as simple as the allergy shots. They're not just a hard, courageous choice to move in the right direction. Instead, they can feel like being in the dark, not sure what the right direction is. And like Naomi, it's easy to try to figure out the secure something now option and just hope it's good enough. Hope that no one gets too hurt in the process or just keep doing what we're doing because we don't know what else to do. But deep down, we know we're drowning and this just can't be God's goodness for us. I've felt this recently thinking about seminary and trying to finish. I'm convinced God called me to it, but I thought I'd be done by now. Not, and I'm tired, really, really tired. Not just of doing too much, but of spending so much time studying and so little time doing. If I'm honest, nothing in me wanted to start my summer class this week. Right now, I'd rather just quit. Decide three quarters of a degree is good enough for me. On the other side is this desire to just be done, to push as hard as I can, as fast as I can, to finish. To say I did it and move on and finally transition into a pastoral role, doing the things that excite me and make me feel most alive and feel like I'm where I'm called. Some days I swing one way, some days the other. I want to quit. Drive as hard as I can. I want to quit. Drive harder. Now, truthfully, I'm not completely convinced either of those are exactly what God has for me right now. I don't really think he's calling me to give up. But I'm equally not convinced it's his voice pushing me to drive so hard to get somewhere that I lose sight of now, of the people in front of me, of the children I'm raising or the job I'm currently working or the opportunities right in front of me to serve and contribute to the work that God is doing. I'd love a neat bow to this, uh, and here's how I figured it out ending, a Ruth and Boaz wedding to tell you about. But I'm still living this one, 
still pursuing God for this answer. But I wonder if somewhere in these coming weeks and months there may be an invitation to a courageous choice, a choice to dream big with God instead of settling for what I can see right now. And I hope if that's the case, that I'll have Ruth-like boldness to say yes, to risk following God in whatever way he invites me, to live more fully, to love more deeply and with more commitment, a yes to something new, a no to something I'm currently doing, or maybe both. How many of us want to be outside and playing baseball so badly that we just push through the allergies? without even considering there could be another way, a better way. Even if that way takes time and energy and the courage to try and so much work. I think there's an invitation this morning, not so much to a perfect answer, but just to take a step towards hope, towards believing in God's goodness for your life, And like Ruth, I don't think we're meant to do that in isolation. God's good provision, his blessing, often comes through the words and actions of the people right next to us. That's part of what I love about belonging to the people of God. We don't need to have and be all the things all the time. That's part of the invitation of this story, to value ourselves the way God does maybe even enough to boldly ask someone right next to us for help. Maybe they say yes, and maybe they don't. But we keep believing that we're worthy of assistance. Ruth doesn't sell herself short. She didn't devalue herself. And neither did Boaz. Neither does God. When we were totally stuck, in desperate need of help, with no good option or path forward, Jesus came to personally be our provision, to guarantee our future and our hope. And he is still the God of won't let go, never gives up, always keeps his promises love. For you, for me, for always. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are the God of won't let go, never gives up, always keeps your promises, love. We thank you that you are good, that even when we feel stuck in the dark, that even when we're not sure what you're doing, that your heart is always for us, that you are always inviting, always loving, always welcoming, always holding out goodness for us. I pray this morning that you would give us the courage to believe that in the places that we need it. That you would give us the courage to ask for help where we need it. That you would give us the courage to believe in your goodness where we need it. To hold on to hope and to accept and feel the love that you have for us. We thank you that no matter where we are, your love never gives up. 
that you always keep your promises to us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.